But tonight we're going to look at a different type of promise. We're going to look at some of the prom or a promise that God made to the whole world. And if you think about this kind of promise, you can think about the promise that God made to Cain early in Genesis that no one would kill him. You can think about the promise made to Ishmael or to Abraham about Ishmael that he also would be a great nation. Or, and this is the promise we're going to focus on tonight, you can think about the promise that God made after the flood to the whole world. So if you think about the story of the flood, we have creation, people grew really, really wicked. God decided to wipe out their wickedness, so he sent this great flood. He called Noah and his family and saved them and a whole bunch of animals. And in the text we're going to read for tonight, the flood has ended. All the remaining people and animals have come out of the ark. And our text picks up at the point that Noah and the animal and the birds and everything has come out of the ark and onto dry land. Let's read from Genesis. We'll read 8.20 to 9.17. In the sermon tonight, I'm mostly going to focus on uh, chapter 9, but we'll read this whole text to get a sense of the story. This is God's word for his people tonight. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Then the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal, and from each man too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, 
This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. When we hear Bible stories that we know really well, it can be hard for us to kind of get the unique features of the story. And it's hard anyway for us here in 2015 to hear these Bible stories with ears that people several thousand years ago would have heard the stories with. So to get at some of the ways that this text is unique and special, I want to tell you a different ancient story tonight. You may know that a lot, a lot, a lot of other ancient cultures had their own flood stories all around the world, but especially in the ancient Near East, in that area around where Israel was, scholars have discovered story upon story upon story about this gigantic flood. And next to the biblical story, the most famous flood story is probably from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in just a minute, I'm going to give you a quick retelling of that story. But before we do that, I want to give you a quick aside. Some people look at all these ancient flood stories, and there are many of them, And then they look at Noah's story in Genesis and they say, oh, Genesis is just another flood myth. Every ancient culture had its silly little story about this giant flood and Genesis has just another silly little story. Isn't it ridiculous that you people believe in them? And that sort of approach to the Bible can be a challenge to our faith. But it can just as easily be a support to our faith. You can say if there's a lot of flood stories... None of them must be really true. But on the other hand, you can say if there's a lot of flood stories, maybe there's actually some truth behind them. If you hear that something happened and you hear it from a lot of sources, it makes sense that there's some real story behind those sources. And if there's a lot of ancient flood stories, maybe there's even one that's true. So we can say, no, the Bible has the true flood story, and then there are all these other versions that spread out from that story. That's not the kind of apologetic argument that's going to convince a hardened skeptic, but at least it's a reasonable answer. And ultimately, we don't depend on our own arguments to support our faith. We depend on what God does in our hearts, what God does for us, the story we get from the Bible, the support we find from the church. But once all those things are in place, it's good for us to have an answer for the hope that we have. So all of that's an aside to talk about early Genesis. But back to our main theme for tonight. We have the Genesis story in front of us, so now I want to talk about the Epic of Gilgamesh, which came from another ancient culture. And that epic has a bunch of parts. It's a whole bunch of stories about an ancient king called Gilgamesh. And in one of those stories, Gilgamesh goes looking for a man called Utnapishim. I'm going to try to say that correctly, but I'm probably going to say it different every time. But Utnapishim was an immortal man who had survived a flood long, long ago. And he tells Gilgamesh this story of the flood. And in that story, the ancient gods, there were a whole bunch of them, they got really mad at humanity. And different ancient Near Eastern stories have different reasons for why the gods got mad at humanity. One story says that that humanity was getting too loud and they were disturbing the gods' nap times, basically. I think the Epic of Gilgamesh actually says that there were getting to be too many people. The gods thought the earth was getting too crowded, and they were annoyed by it. So apparently, noisy neighbors and overcrowding have been problems from pretty much the beginning of time. If you have those problems, you're not alone. So anyway, in this story, the council of gods get together, and one of the gods, who's 
pretty angry in general, is really mad at humanity. And so he convinces the rest of them to get together and wipe the whole species out. And as the gods are making these plans, Ea, the god of wisdom, sneaks out. He goes to this guy, Utnapishim, and he tells him what's going on and tells him to build a boat as fast as he can and get a bunch of animals on there and get his family on there. So Utnapishim and a bunch of his family get on this big boat and a huge storm comes up. The gods let loose chaos on the earth, but then they lose control of the storm. And so the gods run off to heaven, scared to death of this storm they have started. And as they're sitting around in heaven, watching the storm rages, the gods realize that once humanity gets wiped out, there's not going to be anybody to offer sacrifices to them anymore. And in that time, as the story went, the way that gods got their favorite food was from the offerings that humanity brought. So the gods realize that they've just destroyed their favorite source of food. So they all sit in heaven and weep and wail as the flood goes on and on and on. It's like these people have burned down their favorite restaurant and then they sit in the parking lot next door and they cry because they're hungry. And after about a week, the storm stops, the boat comes to rest, and after that, Utnapishim and his family offer a sacrifice to the gods. And then all the gods come and they swarm like flies around this sacrifice because they're so happy that someone is offering a sacrifice to them. And incidentally, if you've ever seen flies swarm around rotten food, describing God swarming like flies around the sacrifice is not exactly complimentary imagery for the gods. And after a while, the angry God who wanted to destroy all of humanity shows up and he's ticked off that there are any survivors. But the other gods tell him off. They tell him he's stupid and he's stubborn and why in the world did he convince them to get rid of all humanity because there wasn't going to be any food after that. And finally, he sees the error of his ways and all the gods settle down to enjoy this sacrifice. An awful lot of ancient stories about the gods end up sounding like a really, really lousy soap opera with extra, extra stupid main characters. But that's how they are. And we do see some similarities between the flood story in Genesis and this epic of Gilgamesh. There's a great flood, a god or someone helps one man and his family and the animals to escape in the boat. At the end, the man offers a sacrifice and the gods or God respond positively. There are those similarities, but the differences are much, much more significant. In the story of the Gilgamesh epic and the gods of Gilgamesh, they're all petty, selfish, and stupid. They're always fighting amongst themselves. They act impulsively and idiotically. They send a flood and then lose control of it. They depend on humanity like parasites. They cause chaos and destruction. It stinks to have gods like that. But the God of the Bible is different. The gods of Gilgamesh are petty and stupid. But the God of the Bible is powerful and wise. He's gracious and he makes plans and carries them out. The God of the Bible sees evil growing in the world and he sends the flood not to wipe out all creation in a fit of rage, but he sends the flood to deal with and to do away with evil in the world. And after the flood, God responds to Noah's sacrifice not with neediness, but with grace. The true God is not arbitrary. He's not short-sighted. He's not crazed with power. And what's more, as we see especially in Genesis 9 8 to 17, 
The God of Genesis is a faithful, covenant-making God. The key theme of this section of Genesis is that God makes a covenant with all the living creatures of the earth. God makes a covenant not just with his people, but with all the living creatures of the earth. And there's a funny little detail about that particular covenant. Often when God makes covenants in the Old Testament, the Bible says the Lord made the covenant. The Lord made the covenant. In ancient Hebrew, they had two words. They had a lot of words for God, but their word for the Lord was Yahweh. And Yahweh was the covenant God of God's special people. Yahweh was a relational name. Yahweh was a special name for the God who had covenanted with his people. And then there was Elohim. And Elohim was more of a generic name. It could mean the gods, or it could mean some particular God, or it could mean the Lord God. So when the Bible says Yahweh, the Lord, it's looking at God in particular as the Savior, as the Father of his people. But when the Bible just says Elohim for God, it has a little different emphasis. In Genesis 9, it says that Elohim, that God, rather than Yahweh, the Lord, made the covenant. God makes a covenant with every living creature for all generations to come. The God of Genesis makes a binding promise to the whole world. The God of Genesis makes a binding promise to the whole world. This isn't a promise specifically for God's people. It's a promise for every living creature on the whole earth. God makes a promise to Noah, to his descendants, to all the animals from the antelope to the zebra. God makes a promise to everybody and everything. Notice in this story how God is graciously disposed to all of creation, even though humanity and the world don't deserve it. In chapter 8, 21, it tells us that the Lord smelled Noah's sacrifice, and he said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Even though humanity didn't deserve it, God made a binding promise never to destroy the world with a flood again. And then again in Genesis chapter 9, God tells Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now earlier in the Garden of Eden, God had told this to Adam and Eve, and obviously Adam and Eve had screwed it up. The world had gotten really bad, so bad that God had to wipe almost everybody out. But again here in chapter 9, God gives that command again. Right after he had to inflict terrible punishment on the world, God again gives humans a great command to go and rule over creation. And then in chapter 9, verse 5, God says he'll require a reckoning for every human blood that's spilled. God is not stupid at this point. He knows these are sinful people. He knows they will do terrible things. He still promises that he won't wipe the world out. But God also says there will be order in this world. God is not going to let the world slip into chaos. He's going to hold off on judgment for now in some respects. But he does promise that there will be order. Things will be right 
chaos and evil will not reign. And God even goes so far as to legally bind himself to this promise that he makes. Genesis 9 verses 8 to 17 are God making a legally binding agreement with the whole world. And those verses, I don't know if you caught it when I read through it. You have to really pay attention to get this. But in those verses, Genesis 9, 8 to 17, there are a lot of repeated words. And in the ancient world, they didn't have the option to bold words or to underline them. So if you wanted something emphasized, you repeated it over and over again. If you wanted something emphasized, you repeated it over and over again. If you wanted something emphasized, you got the point, I'll stop. In these verses, there's a number of key words repeated. Between verses 8 and 17, Genesis says, and God said, three times. Three times, God makes a binding statement. And the word covenant is repeated seven times in those verses. Seven times, God emphasizes that he is making a binding promise. And then different words for living creatures, for all the flesh of the world, different words to describe every living being on the planet, those different words show up eight times in those verses. And the word earth also shows up eight times in those verses. And God said three times. Covenant, seven times. All the living creatures of the earth, eight times. This text wants us to hear loud and clear that God makes a covenant with all the living creatures of the earth. God makes a covenant with all the living creatures of the earth. God promises that life on earth will be kept from wholesale, well-deserved divine destruction. In Genesis 9, God promises that he is going to maintain order in the world. He's going to hold back chaos and destruction. He's going to require justice for every action taken against humanity. He's going to maintain space for goodness, even in the midst of all of humanity's evil and the world's brokenness. This story stands kind of halfway between Adam and Abraham in some respects. In Adam... In Adam's time, God made a perfect world and he gave it to humanity and people wrecked it. In Abraham, God starts calling his people out of the world and he sets them on a journey to the promised land that ultimately means the new heaven and the new earth where God will make creation new again and where there will be no more evil. But in between Adam and Abraham, God makes this promise for the whole world in the meantime, he makes this promise that he will not destroy the earth again. And by implication, the flip side of that is that God makes a promise that he will continue to hold the world up. God will watch over the world. Now, this tells us a couple things that God is not. First, God is not crazy. God is not crazy, and he is not stupid. Now, I know that sounds like the most obvious point ever, but bear with me here for a minute. The true God is not like the gods of Gilgamesh who couldn't keep control of themselves or control of the world. Those gods of Gilgamesh threw temper tantrums. They couldn't see beyond the ends of their nose. They acted like little toddlers throwing temper tantrums. 
the ancient gods. And the way people understood the ancient gods were that they were unpredictable, unhelpful, uncontrollable, unpleasant, and uncertain. It was hard to say what they might do next, but you could guess it wasn't going to be pleasant. Life with the gods of Gilgamesh was miserable. And in some ways, our modern view of the world, well, it gives us that same tendency toward chaos. If you listen to a lot of scientists and philosophers, they put us in an unpleasant, unpredictable, uncertain world today. We don't know what's going to happen next. The world could get wiped out tomorrow by a volcano or an earthquake or a comet or aliens or who knows what. And there's no meaning, there's no point, there's no order to anything. Life just happens. It's crazy, it's stupid, you don't know what's coming next, and that's just how it is. That's one of our modern mythologies. But the Bible gives us much more than that. The God of the Bible controls chaos. The God of the Bible promises to uphold creation. The God of the Bible is personal and powerful, and he has promised to maintain order in the world. So God isn't crazy. He's not a force of chaos. We can depend on him. But also, God is not just a watchmaker. If one modern mythology is to say that everything is chaos and unpredictable and crazy, another modern mythology is to say that some kind of force set the universe in motion and then walked away. The classic example of this is someone who made a watch and then just left it in a field to keep running and running forever on its own. That is not how God made the universe, though. God is not just a watchmaker. He didn't just create the world, set it in its patterns, and let it go and get on with something else. God is involved in the world every second. Without God's upholding providential work, the world would fall to pieces. If God took his hand off creation for an instant, creation would fall into the abyss. There is an attraction to seeing God as the watchmaker. If God just set up the world and then he lets it run on, his, on its own, that means we're in charge. That means if we can figure out the rules of creation, if we can figure out how God built the world, well, then we can get things going our own way. You can imagine it a bit like someone walking into their brand new house for the first time. They're grateful to the builder, but they really want him to get out of there. And they want the house to be their house with their rules so they can live the way they want. Humanity would love to be in that position in this world. We'd love to be in charge. We'd love it if God just set this place up and then handed it over to us and took off and left us alone. But that's not how God works. For one thing, God is gracious. And whenever he steps back, people start doing crazy, terrible things. Before the flood, humanity had become truly despicable. And just a few chapters after the flood, humanity is at it again, building the Tower of Babel and trying to make a name for themselves and throw God out of the picture. But God is never out of the picture. God is not just a watchmaker. He doesn't wind the world up and leave it alone. He sticks around. He takes care of creation. He makes it work. So God's not crazy, and God is not just a watchmaker. God is a gardener. God is a city builder. God is a creator and a caretaker. 
God is a creator and a caretaker over all creation. At the beginning of time, God made a garden, and he put Adam and Eve in that garden and told them to develop creation, to make something of it, to take the capacities that he'd put in creation and develop them, to make the world even more than what it was. God creates places for his creatures to thrive and grow and develop. And God maintains those spaces. God cultivates his creation. He plans things out. He makes it all work. Now, that's not the ultimate good, of course. We praise God as the creator and the upholder of all things. And that's an important part of the story. And that's something we can look at for the whole world. As we think about that part of the story, we also need to remember that God is the redeemer. If we don't make the move from this promise to the whole world, to God's promise to his people in particular, we don't have ultimate hope. So remember, Jesus ultimately is the ark that we need to be on. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who changes everything. But in this story, in the story of Noah, Genesis tells us that God cares for all of the earth. God cares for all people. God makes binding promises to every single living creature on this planet. God cares about us deeply enough to send his son to die for us, but God cares enough about all of his creation to promise to take care of it. So what's the payoff for this today? What does all of this mean? Let me give you three ways that this matters in our lives. God has made a binding promise to all the living creatures of the earth to uphold the world. And first, that means we can know that our work in the world matters. God cares about what we do on this planet today. He values this place. And so we have gardens. We haul garbage away. We make things. And when we make good things in this world, that is pleasing to God. When we appreciate and develop the beauty of creation, that is working in tune with God. This is still our Father's world. We live in it. We're called to enjoy it and to work for its good. And second, along with enjoying the goodness of the earth, we can be secure. We can trust that the earth is secure. God promises to hold chaos at bay. Even though the natural order of things is bent and broken by our sin, God promises that he's going to keep evil, keep destruction within certain boundaries. The world is not a safe place for humanity, but God has promised that he will reserve final punishment for final judgment. The world will not again be given totally over to chaos. This doesn't mean that no bad things will happen in this world. This doesn't mean that we can say, oh, no, don't worry about it. But it does mean that God has put some boundaries on the destruction that he will allow. And finally, this text reminds us that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And God has promised to hold the whole world in his hands. Other gods, other people, every other viewpoint out there lets us down or twists us around into meaningless or hopelessness. But our God 
holds the world secure. God promised to save us from evil and chaos. God promised to limit destruction in the whole world. God keeps his promises. Our God is a promise maker. He makes promises uncountable to us, his people, but he also makes promises to his whole world. Thanks be to God.